Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you uh, that your presence is with us, that you inhabit the praises of your people, as we said before, Father. And Lord, we need you uh, to shine the light of your truth into our hearts and to our lives. And we pray that as we reflect on your word now, as we look at these passages from James, James and we reflect on their meaning for our lives, Lord, that you would open uh, the eyes of our heart uh, to see what you might have to say to us, to how, how you might shape us through the reading and the meditating of your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, often I get to run into people that uh, struggle with believing uh, in Jesus and believing that Jesus is who he said he was. You can call him a skeptic, you can call him a doubter, you can call him whatever it is, but for many people they struggle deeply with who Jesus said he was, who he claimed to be as a person. There was no bigger skeptic probably in human history than James, the writer of the, of the scriptures that we're reading right now. James was Jesus' half-brother, at least most people believe that he was, meaning that he was the son of Mary and Joseph who was born after Jesus. And he had a really hard time believing what his older brother Jesus said and what his older brother Jesus claimed to be. I mean, just imagine yourself in James' shoes when your older brother comes and says, not only am I God, but I'm the long-awaited Messiah that everybody's been waiting for. James had a hard time. He doubted what his brother said. He, in very many ways, rejected him. He rejected him up until he saw Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. When he saw his brother who had been resurrected from the dead, he had an amazing conversion. It changed every single thing about him so that this doubter, this skeptic, transformed into someone who was one of the most influential persons in the early church. He was probably the most prominent leader in the Jewish Jerusalem church. And he wrote this book, James, that we've been looking at the past couple of weeks, one of the probably earliest books of the New Testament. And he writes very powerful things about what it means to have faith in God, what the nature of this thing called faith is really all about. Now, my wife will tell you that often I tend to understate things. It's a thing she always gives me grief for at times. I'd sent her, I was driving to an appointment the other day uh, at Belvedere Square Market, and I saw an accident on Northern Parkway in York Road. So I texted my wife after I'd parked. I texted my wife and I said, there's a big accident on York and Northern Parkway. She sends me back a message and says, is this your way of telling me that you were in an accident on Northern Parkway and York Road? Because you would do that. See, I have a tendency to understate things. Well, James, the author of this book, does not understate things. He doesn't tend to mince words. He tends to be very concrete. And in the passage that we read this morning, he uses very vivid, very powerful, and very strong language to speak about this thing called the tongue and its ability for both good and for bad. And what I'd like to do for the next few minutes is just look at a few things that James says about this thing called the tongue and how it relates to faith that is true or faith that is truly saving. The first thing James wants us to see is that often we need to be warned about the abundance of our words. And it talks a lot about that in the first couple of chapters of verse, or the first couple of verses of chapter three. He says in verse, in chapter one, let everyone be quick to listen and slow to speak. He picks up on something that's said in Proverbs where it says, whoever guards his mouth 
preserves his life. He who opens wide his mouth is one who comes to ruin. Now, it's ironic that Tyler read that about this warning about teachers, because Tyler himself is a teacher. And some people have had a hard time looking at these verses, wondering, you know, is James saying that we ought not to aspire to be teachers? We ought not to aspire to be people that speak in front of others. And I don't think that's exactly what he's saying. But in James' day, teachers had the, uh, they had the most vocal and the most public role in ancient society. They were very, very well respected, which meant everyone wanted to be a teacher. They wanted to have a vocal role. They wanted to be respected. They wanted to be looked up at. They wanted to speak and know that people would listen. And what James says in the midst of this culture is that we, I know everybody wants to be this, but you have to be careful when it comes to such a public nature of speaking. What James is trying to help us to see is with the abundance of words and the public nature often of our words can come all sorts of unsavory things because the tongue and the words that they express are very powerful things. Now, in some ways, our culture has really changed today as it was in James' day. It's much more extreme in our culture today in which we have an incredible accessibility to information. And almost everyone has a public forum at at their disposal, a platform in which they can broadcast their innermost thoughts. You know, I thought about this last week. Um, I caught a little bit. I, I watch a little bit of football after the Ravens are out of it. Last weekend, I watched a little bit of the AFC and NFC championships, and I watched the, the end of the NFC championship. It was a very hard-fought game. But, but afterwards, nobody was really talking about the game. Because after the game, they grabbed uh, one of the players who made a big play at the very end of the game, and they stuck a microphone in front of him, and he proceeded to run his mouth for a long time and say all sorts of interesting things. So much so that everybody forgot about the game and everybody the next day was only talking about the comments that this player mentioned after the game. In fact, most people got on Twitter and Facebook and all that and said, all because of what he said, everybody now is going to root for the Denver Broncos in the Super Bowl. Now, what's really sad about this story is he's actually an interesting character, the man who said this. He's got quite a unique story. He grew up in one of the most drug-infested and gang-infested neighborhoods in one of the most uh, horrible places in California. He went to high school. He finished high school with a 4.2 GPA. He went on uh, to Stanford and excelled in Stanford. And really, by all NFL standards, he has kept his nose very clean in terms of troubles with the law and skirmishes here or there. But, but now, all that is overshadowed. This great story that he had is overshadowed because, for whatever reason, he said these things that were so powerful in front of the microphone in which everybody in the world could really hear it. And the sad part of it is it's probably no better or worse than what you and I yell at the television in our homes when we watch football. But for whatever reason, a microphone was put underneath his mouth and his words were made public. And it highlights the accessibility and the abundance of words that are in our culture. We've all heard stories in which a rumor on the internet would set uh, some sort of skirmish or some sort of war happening in another part of the world. You know, growing up when I had a thought 
or, or had something I wanted to say. The only people I could really talk to were my friends or my family at that point. Well, now we have instruments like Twitter and Facebook. We have the ability to put our thoughts out there into all these social media outlets. And it's not that these outlets themselves are wrong. There's nothing inherently wrong about these mediums. They can be incredibly beneficial in a lot of ways. But they can also lead to an abundance of words. And at times, that can lead to our downfall if we are not careful. And this is James' point. It's that we need to be careful. And that's incredibly poignant in our day and age. Now, why? Why does he say this? Why does he say that the abundance of words is something that we have to be so careful of? And, that, and it's because, he explains to us, because a careless word here or there can cause a great destruction. James warns, really in verses 2 to 8, he warns against the destruction that can be caused by our words, the destruction that can be caused by our tongue. And what he does really vividly is he uses all sorts of images to describe it. He describes the tongue as a bridle in verse 3 that's put in the horse of a mouth. The bridle is a very small piece of equipment, but put in the right spot can control this entire powerful animal. He describes the tongue as a small rudder on a ship in verses 4 to 5. The rudder is a very small piece of a ship, but it's the very thing that directs a massive ship in this direction or that direction. And of course, as we saw uh, through Sheriff's story, he describes it, he describes the tongue as a fire, something that is very small but has incredible power to destroy. And when we read these images, we can almost instantly relate to what James is saying. Because each and every one of us in this room have felt what he is saying. We've felt the sting of a misplaced word that's been directed in our direction that seems to cut us at the very deepest place of our soul. I can't tell you how many times I've counseled people that are dealing with all sorts of present issues in their life that they can stem back to one or two words that someone said to them years ago in their life that have brought them to the place where they are right now. How many girls I've spoken to in our youth ministry throughout the years that I worked in who are struggling with all sorts of kind of weight issues and body issues and all that sort of stuff, and they can trace their present struggles back to something some silly fourth grader said ten years ago that changed the trajectory of their life in one way or another. What is even harder to recognize in all this is our own role in it. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that there have been times where we have let loose words out of our mouth that we wish we could get back. We've been the ones that have cut others down to their soul. And this is why James, in his final illustration, describes the tongue as a wild animal. It's small, but it, has this, it is incredibly hard to manage and to control. Because the reality is nothing shows the power and brokenness of sin in our lives quite like our speech. Jesus mentions this many times throughout the gospel where he says you will know uh, a tree by the character of its fruit. And James picks up on this in verse 12 saying that the soul of man is best best demonstrated in the words that come out of their mouths. 
The truth is, just when we feel like we've got ourselves together, just when we feel like we've got our lives under control and we have ourselves in a place where we're happy, our tongue goes out and reminds us that we are still imperfect and broken people. But James takes this even a step further, and he warns us against the incongruity of true faith and destructive speech. The incongruity of true faith and destructive speech. And you see it in verses 9 to 11. When I was growing up, um, uh, I grew up in a home where where we went to church every Sunday. And for whatever reason, it always seemed like I always tended to fight with my siblings most when we were driving to church on Sunday morning. For whatever reason, it seemed like it was something, maybe it was something in the in the drive or something about it, but we tend to always fight most when we were on our way to church. Now, what's ironic about that is I would, my wife and I would probably say that Sunday mornings, even the drive to church, tends to be the time where our kids most fight pretty much throughout the whole week. And what's sad about that is we only live a half a mile away from church. <laughs> now, is it true that we, they just tend to fight more on Sunday morning, or is it because there's something inside of us that just sees the disconnect? There's something inside of us that sees the disconnect about driving to church and arguing and saying all these nasty words and then walking into church with a big smile on our face, singing praises to God and singing praises to Jesus. It just doesn't seem like the two fit in our hearts and in our lives. And this is what James is trying to say to us. There is an incongruity about arguing in the car and about worshiping God. But throughout the book that we've seen that there's an incongruity that comes between true faith and the speech that comes out of our mouth. Throughout the book of James, we've seen that his biggest concern is to show us what true faith in Jesus Christ really looks like. He wants us to see how True faith is demonstrated in our behavior. And what we've seen throughout is that we have to be careful because often we think that our behavior is the thing that causes God's grace in our lives. But the truth is God's grace comes to us freely. It doesn't come to us because of our behavior. It doesn't come to us because of our spiritual resume. It comes to us out of God's sheer grace. But what we have seen throughout James is that that behavior, the behavior of a changed life, is a demonstration of what true faith really is. It is not the cause of true faith, but it is the effect of true faith. And what James is trying to help us to see is that true faith will deeply impact your life in such a way that it changes your behavior. Whenever I think about this, I think of, of, of a, young, uh, a young high schooler that I worked with when I was in college and I worked with Young Life. I'll call him Chris P. for our illustration purposes. Chris P. was a kid that was involved in our ministry. He was not really a believer in Jesus Christ, but he came because of the girls, let's face it. And uh, he enjoyed coming and he enjoyed being a part of everything. But Chris P. was a pretty foul guy. He uh, was your prototypical, muscly, loudmouth, Italian, chauvinistic young man. And often he would spew all sorts of sailor speech out of his mouth, all sorts of perverted language and all that sort of stuff. And we just kind of roll our eyes and shrugged our shoulders wondering what to do. And that was just Chris P. Until Chris P. met a girl. And then all of a sudden, Chris P. transformed. His speech became much kinder. 
He started holding doors for people. He, he became a little more humble about his attitude and all that sort of stuff. Now, why did Chris P. do that? He did it because he discovered a relationship that made him want to change his behavior. And this is what James is saying throughout the whole book. He's saying when we encounter a relationship with Jesus Christ, it is so transformative and so powerful that it, our behavior changes. It changes. It has to change. It's so powerful and life-giving that it has to change. And we have to question, if there is no change whatsoever, did, are we really experiencing the life-giving nature of a relationship with Jesus Christ? It doesn't mean that when we enter a relationship with him, everything changes overnight. But what it does mean is that slowly and surely, our attitudes and our affections begin to change. And ultimately, because of that, our behavior changes. Now, up to this point, we've only looked at the destructive power of the tongue, but there's a flip side to this discussion as well, and that is that the tongue actually has great power to bring life as well. Listen to these verses from Proverbs. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Rash words are like a sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 15.4 says, A gentle tongue is a tree of life. And it brings us to the last thing we want to see out of James this morning, and that is that the gospel tells us of the power of beautiful speech in order to bring life. It teaches us about our own ability to speak life into other people with our tongues, and it speaks of the way God speaks life into our hearts and into our lives. There's a powerful illustration in Ezekiel 37 where God brings the prophet Ezekiel in, in, in before a valley that's full of dry bones. And this valley, uh, all of a sudden in this valley, the dry bones start to come together and the muscles and the sinews come together in order to form these bodies. But these bodies are lifeless until the word of God is spoken into their lives, until the breath of God is spoken into these bodies, and then they come to life, and there's this great army standing in front of the prophet. What it is, is it's a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ that tells us when Jesus enters into our spiritually dead souls, he speaks words of life into us, And brings us to life. Matthew 27 tells us about Jesus' arrest and his, his, his torture and his crucifixion. And what it tells us is that those who arrested Jesus used their tongues to destroy him. They hurled insults repeatedly, repeatedly at him. They, they spit at him and they mocked him. And in the midst of it, Christ himself remained silent. Matthew goes on to tell us that when Christ was crucified, when he was hung up on the cross, the passers-by would come by and they would, they would hurl insults towards him. They would mock him, words of death and destruction spewed from their mouths while Christ hung on the cross. And yet, what the gospel writers tell us is that Christ himself, when he hung on that cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Words of destruction were all around him, but Christ spoke words of life even in the midst of his death. What the gospel tells us is that if you and I were there, 
If you and I were there, we would have hurled insults and we would have mocked him too. As the song says, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Yet Jesus, he speaks words of life to us. Despite all that, despite our brokenness, despite our rebellion, he speaks words of life and grace into our lives. And that is why even though you and I slip constantly in the use of our tongues almost every day, his grace is spoken into our failure and we are redeemed. And God whispers into our lives, he whispers into our ears, you are loved, you are chosen, you are precious, and you are mine. You know, the gospel tells us that if you know him, then you know that when he enters your life, things change. The thing James wants us to ask is whether our lives evidence that true faith. Does your life evidence the true faith that James is talking about, especially when it comes to matters of the tongue and our speech? Does your life evidence a life that has been deeply impacted by a relationship with Jesus Christ and by the good news of the gospel? But for those of you that may be here this morning that may have never heard this before, that may have never heard the words of God, the words of life spoken into your life. May you hear the words of life as he speaks into your heart this morning. Because the, the truth of the gospel is when we hear those words of life and we, when we respond in faith, we will experience God's grace and his life eternal. Both death and life are bound in the power of the tongue.